Welcome to Transcending Identity. I'm your host, Nicole Lee, and I am thrilled to be your guide on this incredible journey of self-discovery and transformation. This podcast is designed to help you connect deeper with yourself and transcend the identities, beliefs, and environments that may be holding you back from living your best life. I speak with incredible people from around the world who share their stories of transformation, transcendence, and triumph. From entrepreneurs to spiritual teachers, athletes to activists, you'll learn how they overcame obstacles and reached new heights in their lives. I will also share my personal stories, insights, and tools along the way. By listening to this podcast, I hope you feel seen, supported, and inspired to live your best life. Thanks for spending time with me today. Your time to transcend starts now. Hi, love. Welcome to another episode of Transcending Identity. I am so grateful you're here, and I'm excited that you tuned in to this episode around allyship with my amazing guest, Paul Johnson. Paul is a status quo questioner, institutional barriers buster, and aspiring ally who is passionate about developing white men into becoming more inclusive leaders. He's also the co-host of The Modern White Man, a podcast that explores the roles white men can play in diversity, inclusion, equity, and justice work. Now, Paul's journey offers a unique perspective on the intricacies and complexities of allyship. During our time together, Paul shares what it means to him to be an aspiring ally, his shift from a personal battle with guilt and shame to one of self-love on his allyship journey, the complexities of culture and racial identity as it relates to allyship and being in the equity space, the pivotal role he believes white men should take in supporting the advancement of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, and the importance of navigating privilege responsibly, focusing on how to support without imposing on marginalized communities. Also in the show notes, Paul shares books that have been influential in his development of a positive racial identity and his mission in supporting, amplifying, and advocating for others. I hope this episode inspires you to reflect on your own journey, recognize the power and importance of allyship, and take actionable steps towards creating a more inclusive and equitable world around you. Hey, Paul, how are you today? Hey, Nicole, I'm great. And really excited to talk to you. I am so excited that you are here on the podcast, knowing that one of the identities that you align with is being an aspiring ally. And I found it very interesting that you use the word aspiring as part of allyship, which I had never heard before. I'm sure the listeners would love to know more about how you define aspiring allyship and what it means to you. Yeah. A few things that come to mind why I use that phrase. And there have been people who've told me like, why don't you just call yourself an ally? You're an ally. You, you do the work you're showing up. But I, I think it's good for me because number one, it's humbling. It implies that I'm not there yet. And it'll always be a lifelong journey of being an ally. And that humbling part of it, I think keeps me on my toes and keeps me learning and helps me grow and see it as something that I'm working towards rather than getting comfortable. And Mm. Someone with privileged identities, I think it's really important that we are careful about getting too comfortable and are always mindful of. So that's number one. I think secondly, it's a term that I, I can't take credit for at all. It's a term that I've heard in circles of DEI practitioners and activists. And my understanding of the term ally really isn't something that I can name myself or especially white folks or pri- folks with privilege can 
uh, give themselves because it's something that's really determined by those with marginalized identities, right? Those who have marginalized identities get to decide or define who is an ally and what are allyship activities, if you will. And and I think that's fair. They get to decide and assess, right? And so I think with identity, we have our past identity, we have our present identity, and we have our future ideal identity. And so aspiring to me implies that it is the identity that I'm working towards and that it helps me understand that, you know, my past identity, although something to honor and definitely keep as a part of me, it's also not me and not who I want to be and not who I want to become. So aspiring is motivating, it's future you know, oriented. And again, it, it helps me stay humble and avoid that comfort around thinking that I've made it or that I'm an mm-hmm. expert in, an, in a certain area. And I think that's, again, very important for folks of privilege to be mindful of. That is so powerful because there's so much in society about a person is the expert, right? And that implies mm-hmm. having the answer to all things in that particular area. And I love that you're saying like, there's more to know, there's more to explore, there's more to be exposed to. Prompted you to start a journey of becoming an ally and being so focused on supporting marginalized groups and and others who do not have privilege in the way that you see yourself? Well, I've always had a really deep sense of justice, of right and wrong. That's just something that's always been a part of my identity. I think will always will be. It just got to a point later in life, probably in my early 20s, where that sense of justice kind of, you know, connected with the greater injustice of the world. Up until that point, I grew up in a very sheltered, very privileged, very homogenous environment where, you know, I didn't really experience any injustices or see many injustices because I, at least for one, that's just because the veil had still been, you know, over my eyes, but also... I had never really been exposed to injustices in the world. And of course, you know, aging myself here, like, you know, then the internet showed up, right? And then you you started to <laughs> see what's happening globally. And so it just was a natural thing to really jump into activism work and allyship work. And it's really, it's something that I can't not do. You know, I think that's when we talk about identity, you, you can't not be who you are. It's just a matter of how you show up and how you, in the case of, allyship, especially with race and and other marginalized identities, you know, with with me being a person of privilege, it's reconciling that perceived gap and an actual gap of, it feels like I'm over here and, and everyone else is over there and I see the injustice, I see the gap. What can I do about that? How can I show up and how can I help and not continue to harm? And so, you know, thinking about past identity before I was even born, right? And that's mm-hmm. that's something I you know was really was really transformative for me to understand that that there's there's so much injustice and so much of this uh, marginalization even, you know, hundreds and years, year, thousands of years before I was even born. So this is just part of part of the world we live in for a long time and so it's reconciling with that, it's reconciling with the 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 past of of our country and the role that white you know white folks and white men in particular have played in that or not played in that and you know for a long time as you know as a person of privilege when you first discover some of these things you go into i think a lot of anger you go into a lot of confusion you go into also a lot of shame and guilt 
naturally, right? And then you have to, again, reconcile, all right, I am a, a white cis male. I hold a lot of privilege. I've been given a lot of advantages that it feels like I'm a bad person. And I, you know, that, that was part of my identity for a long time, that I'm a bad person, that I don't deserve good things, that I don't deserve joy. I don't deserve this or that. And so for a while that was rooted in my allyship and it felt right at the time. It's sort of that like, well, yeah, this makes sense. You know, my identity or, or the identities that I, that I hold are responsible for bad things. So therefore bad person, right. Or I don't deserve good things. And so I would still do the work, quote unquote, but it would be out of a place of shame, guilt, you know, self-flagellation, misery, right? Like it was wow, yeah. none of the, the good feelings or emotions and, and a lack of connection to my ancestry and culture too. When you go through a period of shame and guilt, when it comes to especially your racial identity, you start to want to reject your own racial identity and therefore your ethnic or cultural identity. And so I never really felt that connection to roots, which I think was left a major hole in my own well-being and positive self-identity. And what I also sense is almost a conflict internally. You know what I'm saying? Of I, I can't imagine yeah. looking at yourself in the mirror and because of the connection you made to your ancestors, because of the connection you've made to the world, looking at yourself and not liking yourself just for that very reason. Yep. And when you have inner conflicts and you have that inner rejection, like you project that out into the world, right? And so so it really made my allyship problematic in a lot of ways because I, I showed up in spaces almost like sheepishly, almost like a dog with, with its tail between its legs, which it's problematic. I mean, looking back, it's problematic because that it's centering me. It, mm -hmm. I give off this vibe that, you know, oh, woe is me. I'm this poor, poor white dude who's feeling bad about his ancestry and everything that's happened, you know. And so I essentially, you know, would be showing up into spaces and and taking on energy and attention from other people, which is the opposite, right? Like of what allyship really looks like, especially from a racial standpoint, is that I, you know, it's decentering myself in the conversation and the work. It took a long time to accept it, but yes loving myself was the answer to better allyship. Like that still kind of is a inner conflict of like, it just doesn't match up. Right. Like, and I think that comes from just our punitive system, right? Like our punitive justice system where like, if you did something bad, you should be punished. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been really needed some un unlearning because I think in an equitable, inclusive world, in a, in a world where we're you know, moving towards liberation, it's not a punitive world, right? It's it's a world where we we aren't shamed for what we do and we're not labeled as bad or good even, right? We just are. We we and we're fluid and we're changing, but we all deserve grace. And so I think that was a really, really critical but also really challenging moment and transition in my allyship to realize that not only do I deserve love, but that's essential as well as connecting with my ancestral roots in a positive way and or even just just accepting that yes i am connected with my white caucasian ancestors that it that is what it is right and there's good with that and there's there's obviously bad with that and that i think what overall was was transformative in my identity development what was the tipping point 
or were there people in your life that helped mm. ground you to get you into that place of self-love and, and enough separation, right, from taking on the identities, behaviors, and attributes that were not good, weren't serving, weren't loving, so that you could show up in the way that you desired? Mm. Yeah, there were a lot of things, and it was a lot of it was just learning, right? Like, Okay. I'm reading a lot of different books and a lot of different resources and following different people on social media. And, you know, I think one thing that comes to mind immediately was I, I'm certified in the intercultural development inventory, the IDI. And so that tool was helpful in terms of even, even, and this is just, you know, again, speaks to the depth of the veil for folks with privilege is even understanding that I have a culture was was groundbreaking like what i have culture right and that that is a, a product of growing up in the dominant culture right it's like you, you don't know the water you're swimming in and sort of sort of situation and when you're in the dominant culture it's not as apparent to you that you have culture or you you come you know you have in this case ancestry so so the exploration into my cultural roots like where did my ancestors come from what were cultural elements of my ancestors it kind of took me out of this obsession of race for for a moment, not completely out of course, but to think about culture was was helpful because again, race is a construct. It's not even it's it obviously is real, right? But it's not real. It's right. it's a made up construct. The culture is real, right? And so it really I think got me out of this trance or whatever you want to call it with thinking that I'm that it, only of my racial identity and by understanding that I have cultural roots and ancestry and and even feeling connected to that, I think to me really was needed to get out of that colonial white supremacist mindset mm-hmm. and into like this with people and connection with others and community, right? And again, looking at my culture, there's good and bad, of course, but just just the simple fact of being connected to culture was was huge for me. The second thing I'll say was, I, I already mentioned Resmo Menicum, but his book, My Grandmother's Hands, was the first time I ever considered that I, he talks about how white folks deal with racial trauma and understanding how, where, what is racial trauma? How does that affect me as a, as a white person? And how it shows up in my, you kind of mentioned earlier, the, the behaviors, the things I do, the things that, that I feel. And it, it really opened my eyes to this work as not just intellectual, but somatic mm-hmm. and emotional, deeply based off of trauma. And so that just blew my mind in so many ways. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, I did for a while, I did a podcast called The Modern White Man with a friend of mine. And, you know, he really got me down this road of the aspiring part, you know, Let's reconcile with the history of white men. What did white men do and not do in the history of this country and how we, you know, white men contributed to the state of things today, but, or, and, or we want to say it, what does our future look like as white men? Who do we want to be now? Now that we know what it's looked like in the past, who do we want to be most importantly? And, and how does that identity connect directly with I guess, undoing what has been done, if you will, mm-hmm. or creating a better world, simply using our power and privilege to to advance justice and equity in our world. And that was a light bulb moment for me to say, okay, yeah, I can reconcile with the past and it sucks and I feel guilt about it, 
but that it doesn't need to end there, right? Before that's where it just ended. Oh, it sucks. I'll still do this work, but eh, it doesn't feel good. But now it's like, well, now, you know, and this comes back to hope, you know, hope is so motivating, you know, shame and guilt is motivating to extend, of course, but not obviously a good, a sustainable motivation. Hope is motivating. And, and for me, who, who I aspire to be, and that there is even a possibility that I can be the person I want to be is, is hopeful. That's a sustainable way to do this work. Wow. Really does create internally. It's like, great, I can have hope for myself, but it does create this hope that what you're also doing will change the world. I think it's really courageous that you started a podcast and named the podcast what you did because that was a bit provocative in itself. <laughs> you know, Ken okay. Lawrence, my, he had the idea... He set up everything. He did all the editing and, and really all the, the heavy lifting. He just asked me to be a co-host. And he approached me when I still was, I would say, in that phase of some of that self-loathing. My initial reaction was, are you are you crazy? Like, when he pitched the idea to me, I was like, are, what? Like, I thought it was a joke. Because mm -hmm. I'm like, you're, you're, you're saying you want to have two cishet white men go on the airwaves, take up the airwaves and talk about race and gender like the last thing this world needs is two more white men mansplaining things right so but then he he you know explained more of the purpose and talked about how he was influenced by um, dr beverly daniel tatum's book why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria and this was you know another part of my transformation was the idea that you know white folks need to do racial identity work you know, and it just, it just comes all back to like, when you're in the dominant culture and you're privileged, you just don't think you have to do this stuff. You don't need to think about your culture or your race, or it's just, you just live your life, right? You just are, you exist. And so talked about like racial identity and this aspirational identity of working to be anti-racist and anti-sexist. I was like, oh, I can get on board with that, right? And it was a little, it, I was a little bit more amenable to that. It's still, I still was hesitant and I was ready for, you know, hate mail to be coming in nonstop. But <laughs> I would say 99% of the time, the reaction was, oh, good. I'm glad you all are talking about this, right? Like we need white men talking about this. And it just like really surprised me. I was like, what, really? Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll keep, we'll keep talking about it. And I remember he and I had a conversation before we even got started. We're like, you know, if and when, right, we get, criticism and we are going to, you know, gracefully listen and take the feedback and, you know, have a conversation if necessary. But we were very mindful of that from the very beginning and saying, you know, we we need to, as you know, two white men, we need to be mindful of this critical feedback because yeah, it, it is very provocative as a title. What I found is when people start to listen to what we talk about, it really is needed and and we need more white men to have these conversations and and have spaces to even talk about our struggles and of course talk about how we what part we can play in this there's a really great research study that i came across called a white i think it's called a white men leadership study but it's by great heart consulting and they kind of do a, a state you know a state of things with men in dei work and and if you look at the look at the numbers most white men don't feel a part of this work at all they feel excluded. They feel, you know, at worst, they feel completely excluded and, and rejected. 
at best, we're just kind of in this, like, ah, what do I do? Like, where do I fit in? I like, I want to do something, but what's my role? And I think that's at a macro level, just how white men are feeling in general, this word, like, ah, like, what do I do? What do I not do? And to gain more clarity around what roles we can play and, and how critical our role is too, I think is just so important because we, we have so much power and influence and privilege. Not that, not that we earned all of that. It's just due to our identities, right? And, and our structures, we have so much potential to make deep, meaningful change wherever we are. And we need to be able to harness that and, and leverage that. And so sitting around and kind of twiddling our thumbs or even just kind of like sitting on the margins, like not knowing what to do, like that's not helpful for anybody. There's so much potential since we are white men or so many white men are in positions of influence that we need more white men to, to get on board and be yeah, confident in their ability to work for justice and equity. And I did listen to the podcast and it was, it was enlightening. It was, I, and this is just because of language I use. I found it to be beautiful because two white men who are willing to be that vulnerable to have conversations mm. that I know are actually happening, but it's kind of the same situation where it's not until someone else says it, right. You know, to hear another white man say that I feel guilt or shame, or I'm confused, or I'm not sure where I fit, or I felt rejected when I actually tried. Hear another white man hear that is like, oh, it's not just me. And now I want to listen in because maybe this person has information that will help me move forward. Yeah. Being in corporate America for 20 years and working in spaces with white men, I think that sometimes that's lost, that white men can have insecurities inferiority complexes about their role when it comes to marginalized groups. However, it does not discount you taking an active role to be part of the change and movement and not sitting on the sideline waiting for somebody to invite you in. Yeah. When you said inferior, inferiority complex, that, that really stirred something in me. And I think that's central to why we have so many white men who are either again at best waffling or wondering what to do and then at worst fighting back right like mm -hmm. the backlash we have been conditioned to feel superior to know what we're doing to be in control to have the answers to know what to do and when it comes to this work we don't know what the hell we're doing, right? We don't have the answers. We, we're not in control. We feel inferior. And there's, you know, all those insecurities come out. And then, you know, of course, and essentially at the end of the day, you know, unhelpful or ineffective ways of being. And so, and, and this is just within the context of white supremacy too, right? So the, the, the word supremacy is key, right? So feeling mm -hmm. supreme, feeling better than, you know, higher morality and ethics. And so, of course, the goal isn't to feel superior. The goal is to feel empowered, to feel confident, to feel clarity, to, to feel in control, not in control of others, but in control of yourself. And when you feel out of control, that leads to, it leads to chaos, right? Both internally and externally. And so, yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head there. And what I felt personally too, of 
I don't know what to do. And I keep messing up and I keep feeling like I may never get this. And so our natural instinct then when that's happening is to tap out to say, well, then I'm not going to try it all. I'm not going to do this. Right. Have you had situations with you now being more out there, more vulnerable, more expressive that you've actually had white men that have said, wow, that's Mm -hmm. me. How, how can I be better? Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I've connected with a lot of amazing people, you know, being active on LinkedIn, just other white men. And it's so helpful because it's so isolating for so long. I was thinking, am I the only white guy doing this or who cares about this even, right? And the other thing too, I was thinking as we're talking, we don't have a lot of like, you know, historically speaking, a lot of great role models, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> we have, you know, endless amounts from marginalized groups of amazing role models and people with courage and people who stood up and did the right thing. But you know, it, it just feels like, and I know there's obviously, there's definitely lots of white men throughout history who, who are role models, but it, it feels like we have a lack of, of role models, you know, even present day, I'd say, right. In, in positions of influence and power. And so, you know, again, that goes back to, I don't know what I'm doing, right. It's like, it's uncharted territory, others to help us along the way. And I think, you know, one thing that's critical that I want to, I want to say to, to white men and white folks in general, you know, who are listening is, this is why it's important to be in community with other white folks, because for a long time, I made the mistake of asking marginalized folks for help. And not to say that there are definitely people who are willing to help and have helped. But overall, the lesson I've learned is that folks, marginalized folks, especially folks of color, are tired. They're tired of, you know, white people coming to them and saying, I don't know what to do. Tell me what to do. And and so... I made that mistake for a long time of doing that, going to people I know saying, hey, I want to help. Tell me what to do. Give me a give me a list of things I can do. And essentially, I'm saying to them is, how do you help me feel better about myself? <laughs> how do you help me create an image that I'm one of the good ones, right? And so it's, it's not only like the labor putting on someone else um, to help me do the work, but it's also, again, assuaging that guilt and shame. So... Being in community with other white folks, having these conversations, to be able to be vulnerable is so critical. And I've, you know, informally had lots of great conversations with other folks. I've been in some affinity groups with other white folks, and it's so helpful to be able to say, I don't know what I'm doing. I messed up. What do I do? Like I said, this thing, it caused harm. I did this thing. What do I do? Like, help me out. And that's countercultural, right? Like we have been conditioned by white supremacy to not talk about race, to not hold each other accountable for things like racism and sexism. So to be able to, again, go out on a limb, right? That be courageous enough to do something countercultural is difficult, but so necessary if we ever hope to change the the path and, and, and arc of our world. Are there two or three things that you would advise someone who is privileged white male of what they can do to to move forward to to be an aspiring ally i think the first thing i would say is that we white men are a critical part of this work yeah i mean there's not much more to be said other than i mean that's that's so nuanced and there's a lot to that but it cannot we cannot ever achieve justice equity without involvement of white men. I mentioned earlier, we, we hold by far, you know, we are, we are in positions of power in when I'm talking about like institutions. And so we have the potential to make changes 
based off of again what we hear what we know from marginalized communities i think you know is listening and believing there's one thing to listen to folks of color and and marginalized people it's another thing to believe Mm, that's powerful really really critical and it's hard to believe it's and i still find myself if i hear someone you know they say something happened to them at work or something like really i don't are you, are you sure? I think I feel like they're embellishing a little bit. Like I, it's literally a, a, a automatic reaction, I think, for folks in privilege and power because we don't want to believe because it means we have to do something about it, right? And it makes mm-hmm. us feel uncomfortable. We have to change. I think the other concept that's really difficult to understand is that DEI work, or I like, I like to say DEIJ. I just I don't like to talk about, think about DEI without justice, but it's not zero sum. I think that is something that it's really challenging to understand because I know for white men, it's very much a feeling of this DEI stuff is anti-white. It's anti-white men in particular, and its sole goal is to displace us. It's to kick us out of our positions and, you know, oust us from power. And, you know, it, it creates this image of that there's not room for all of us. So that, that's a difficult concept. I think that that's going to take, even for me, a long time to really understand. Because if I'm completely honest, there's part of me who feels that too. Like, where do I fit in this? And it just feels like I'm getting pushed out of the conversation of the group, right? So really being mindful of that narrative and the, the myth of that narrative is really critical and having more of an abundance mindset of we all benefit from the EIJ work. And then the other thing I'll say too, and this is another pitch of someone who I really like and follow, Deepa Iyer, did something around the social change ecosystem. You can Google it. It's it's really incredible. But it talks about how there's so many different roles that people can play in she you know says equity, liberation, justice And that's really helped me understand what role do I play and what role do I not have to play? Because sometimes we can get burned out or feel a lack of clarity when it it feels like we have to play all the roles. And if we're not playing certain roles, we feel this sense of, I'm not good enough. But she has all these different roles like healers and disruptors and storytellers and experimenters and visionaries and builders. Like all, like there's oh, so yeah, I have roles. heard of that. Yeah. yeah. To know that we all have a role to play. Yep. Yeah. And there's this ecosystem, right? So, so that also for white men, we can, we can find our roles that we can play and own those roles wherever we're at. And I think that's the last thing I'll say too, is we don't have to be in a position of a authority to influence. We have so much potential to influence and change wherever we are. And so, you know, I'm referring obviously to the workplace, but this, you know, refers to the community or whatever you want to say that we have the ability to influence no matter where we're at. And, and with that, we're not in a position of power. It's most likely a a white male in, in that position, or at least a white person. And so we have influence there. We can we we have more of the ability to to influence that person than anyone else. And 
I'll be honest, it's, it's risky, right? I'm sure you know the term career limiting move. It's something that kind of came across just from people saying like, you know what you're doing there? That's a career limiting move. You probably shouldn't do that. I'm like, well, if it, if it limits my career, that it is what it is. My ultimate goal is justice and equity. And if that means it, it you know, prevents me from getting a promotion or a position, well, it's, that's kind of the, you know, the, the unfortunate result of that. But that's not my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal is, is, is change and influence. So yeah, influence wherever you are and find your co-conspirators is you know, the phrase thrown around the activism space because it's not sustainable to do it, do it alone. So just as we talked about earlier, find others who think like you and you can be vulnerable with and, and you can be in community with because that's, that's going to keep you going. Thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your courage and vulnerability. I'm so grateful. And I know there were several books that you mentioned and references. We will make sure to have those in the show notes as well as information of how to connect with Paul. Thank you again, Paul. I appreciate you. Yeah, it was an honor. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this episode enriched your life. If so, please leave a review, subscribe, and share this episode with others. Let's continue to grow together, transcend to new heights, and create a life that truly reflects who we are. I'll see you soon on another episode of Transcending Identity. Transcending Identity.